You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 137. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You've reached another Local Maximum. Welcome to the show. Today is a, well, it's a very different day on The Local Maximum because today we are introducing a brand new show format here on the local maximum it's called a call in show it's not exactly a, a new format in terms of uh, podcasting or radio overall but a uh, new format for the local maximum previously we've had three main formats on the show one we've had the sh- solo shows where it's just me talking for i usually plan to talk for 30 minutes although i've been known to talk for an hour sometimes uh then Sometimes we have kind of news updates or discussion with me and my co-host, usually Aaron. And those, I also plan to last for 30 minutes, but those definitely last for an hour sometimes. And then the the third format that I have is the guest format, where I invite people who have something interesting to say onto the show. And the show is uh, an interview. And I have a couple of, you know... Uh, kind of rarer ones where a few times we had an expert panel on where I interview multiple people. And then one time I did kind of a recorded talk of mine. But today, today is different. This is a new format for me. We are going to take feedback from, from people like you, from the listeners. I want to hear what people have to say about previous episodes and topics that we have done. So today, I and I, so people have uh, sent me email, and I asked anyone if they wanted to do a call-in, and they said, what's a, what's a call-in? How is, is that very nerve-wracking? Is that difficult? No, not at all. You just put something on your calendar. I send you to a website, and I have a five, 10-minute conversation with you. We talk about whatever we want. And you can know if you if you stumble over your words, we can always edit stuff out. And it's not that big of a deal anyway. So today, we have two calls and one email that I want to go over. Uh, we are covering tons of topics today. Today's topics cover Bayesian inference, COVID-19, topology, computer science, and electoral systems in the Electoral College all rolled into one. So tons of ground. So why don't we just get started with our first ever Local Maximum call-in show. Our first caller uh, came to our show through episodes on Bayesian inference and actually ended up publishing a manuscript on Bayes' rule applied to COVID-19 testing. Let's have a listen. You've reached the Local Maximum. Welcome to the show. Please tell us your name and what it is that you do. Uh, my name is Gar Chan. I'm an uh, emergency room doctor um, and a medical toxicologist. Okay, very cool. And I, so uh, you reached out to me and a few other podcasters, and uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you uh, found some good information uh, from the podcast, or you're enjoying it at least. Um, what, uh, what, what episode uh, were you listening to, or what topic were you listening to? Um, I started listening to the. Uh, Talk Python to me podcast, and just as an immersion into coding in Python, which I took part of in about a year ago, and uh, I took a that, liking to the Bayes episode that you were in, um, and that's where I got started with your podcast. It redirected me to your podcast. A, a lot of people tell me that, and you know, I was so surprised at how popular that Talk Python to me show is, and it's it's a good show. I uh, I tune in from time to time. And, um, but man, I've never had so many people, I've been on a lot of podcasts and I've never had more people than people who say they come from that podcast. Yeah. It, uh, you know, in terms of just 
just getting started with Python or just getting um, going with it. I, I, I took a course, you know, in person, but I wanted really to immerse myself into it. So I, I hardly understand half of what's going on. But uh, when they hit the base topic, I said, oh, I got to check this guy's podcast out um, in terms of yours. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. And I know you found the Alex's podcast as well, right? That was the, the Learn Bayesian Statistics one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so I just skipped over that uh, once, once he was a guest on yours, and I just skipped over just to, 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 to try to immerse myself into the idea of how Bayes yeah. is um, you know, active in the world of programming and machine learning. So what, what did you know about Bayesian inference beforehand, and what did you, what was your, what was your updated opinion on it? If I should pose this question in a very Bayesian manner. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, Bayes as an idea within medicine, uh, is pretty simple in terms of diagnostic testing. Um, and I sort of jumped a little bit deeper into it when I read, um, I think Daniel Kahneman's book, thinking fast, thinking slow. Um, and he mentions, Another author, I think his name is Bird Gingerenzer or um, something like that, uh, who posed a question to doctors um, how to think about a diagnostic test. And I think it was a very simple question. If a 30-year-old woman has a positive mammogram, what's the likelihood she has breast cancer? And 90% of doctors answered the answer incorrectly, mostly because they don't understand what the test means um, you know, alongside of risk. You know, so the lifetime risk of breast cancer, I think, is around 3%. So any given woman on any given day that tests positive um, is going to have, you know, a slightly higher than 3% risk of breast cancer, even with a positive test. So you need to apply the test to the individual. You need to know what their risk is or their priors. So is there a family history of breast cancer? Is there a, you know, suspicious lump? You know, things like that. What's the patient's age? So as you accumulate all those priors, then you have a pretest probability, and then you apply the, the test, the diagnostic test to the individual. So on any given day, if you have a random person that just takes a you know, mammogram not knowing their risk, it doesn't adjust their risk um, differently because you're using you know, what's the incidence of breast cancer uh, on the given population. Whereas when you take the individual's risks by themselves, then you could have a proper prior or sort of proper, you know, post-test sort of uh, risk. So that's yeah, when I, I started I, getting into the, the idea of Bayes and its influence on diagnostic testing. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've heard that example, that specific example I've heard before, but I usually change it, you know, when I'm talking to some random medical test, I guess now it's, <laughs> I guess last six months has always been, uh, you know, COVID-19 test or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good example. And I always feel like, you know, when I'm, I go to the doctor, I wish I had more of a probabilistic sense of what was going on when they're running tests and doing diagnostics and stuff like that. But I always find that that information is very hard to come by um, in, in any of my particular situation, like any, any particular situations, like in a routine uh, annual exam and things like that. Like I never get the, uh, I never get like the stats of my risk level or of so-and-so. It's always just... Um, hey, we're just going to tell you what it is. And I, maybe I understand, maybe that's the, the best way to talk to the public, but I, I wish it weren't like that. Yeah, it's, it's never that simple. Um, and I, I hear people talk about, 
we're test results all the time at work and the interpretation um, other than positive negative is never, you know, um, I, you know, ideal in terms of what I hear, you know, somebody comes, you know, reports a negative test to me. I'm like, Oh, well, we'll have to talk to them about that. Their risk is lower, um, but it's not zero, you know? So I think there, there, there are other things that, that come into play, you know, is this the gold standard test? Is it just a screening test? You know, so those are the things that come into play when I think about phase and its influence on medicine at least. Yeah. So, okay. So you ended up uh, writing a, a manuscript that you mentioned. Can you tell us you know, what it was called and uh, basically, you know, what, what you were saying in there and also like where it was published? Yeah. Um, so, you know, during, you know, this COVID sort of outbreak around the world, um, you know, you hear news reports and you, you see the public health um, teams um, sort of, you know, running around like chickens without heads on and trying to figure out how to sort of, uh, ring, you know, ring fence this event. And uh, I just decided to say, well, you know, what's the actual, you know, sensitivity of this RNA-PCR test? And wherever I look, the sensitivities or its um, rate of true positives relative to true positives and false negatives is not that great. And it's anywhere between, you know, high 60% to low, low 90 or maybe high 80%. Whenever you use a screening test like that with those statistics, you're going to have a lot of, um, you know, false negatives, which is problematic. So wait, was, because, was that for most COVID-19 tests or, or a, this is, a common this is one? The, the most common one, which is the RNA-PCR. Okay. That's the swab in the nose, in the throat. Um, okay, so that's the one so, I've heard about. Yeah, so that's that's the most common one. Um, so it, when people started saying that we need more testing, more testing, it, it's great that we could test everyone. But once you get the test result, the interpretation of the test result is which is, is, is the most important thing. So with that sort of level of frustration, I looked around and said, is anybody talking about this? You know, I'm in, I'm in Tasmania at the moment. So a lot of my peers and my mentors are back in the New York City area. So I wrote one of my mentors, like, how come nobody's talking about this? And he's older, uh, and he's he's been around much longer. He says, you know, Gar, nobody wants to hear this right now. Everybody, you know, this is this is fear driven. Um, nobody wants to talk about the you know the accuracy of the test. Um, so you see all these drive through testing centers. You know how how are they going to inform these individuals when they get a negative test? What to do next? And th- that was my fear, like because the, tr- the you know false negative rate was too high. Um, in, for my comfort, you know, comfort level, but that that prompted me to write this manuscript, and I shopped it around in terms of you know try to find you know who would publish it and things like that. So eventually, the title of the manuscript is uh, based there in COVID nineteen and screening tests, just as a sort of a, um, a simple sort of way of viewing tests, screening tests, at least in medicine, using Bayes' idea and with this current COVID nineteen testing. And it's open access, so it's available through American Journal of Emergency Medicine, um, and the print publication is sometime in the future. But it was a, it's currently available in open access, which is great. Yeah, I think early on in this whole thing, I think I tried to like go on Twitter and ask about the accuracy of the tests, and I I basically got back like you know you should feel bad for asking, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, Twitter is not a very good place to go for this thing. Um, yeah, but, but, but uh, in that there's a bit of truth. It's, it's not yeah. great, you know, for a screening test, 
you know, for a screening test, you want a lot of false positives. You want you want all the true positives and a bit of false positives as a first line sort of test. And when you Is do that, have a yeah. yeah. Oh, I oh, that's what, what, teaching. Do you have like what are the ap- approximate rates for that test? I think you said before, but Initially in March, some of the uh, sensitivities of the test were about 67, 60, maybe 70 percent. And more, more recently, I think uh, people are saying that the sensitivity is upwards of 90 percent, which is still so, not great for sensitivity. Yeah. What does that mean? What is sensitivity in terms of like false positive, false negative? So in terms of um, sensitivity, you, you get a, a number of true positives and false negatives. Right. So hmm. ideally, the, the sensitivity is your true positives divided by true positives and false negatives. So gotcha. The, gotcha. Yeah. OK, so, yeah, there's a whole, so there's there's a whole lot more few, to so. it. There's like specificities, uh, yeah. you know, likelihood ratios and things like that. But just as a sort of initial understanding of it, the sensitivity is important for a screen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot that could be said about that in terms of, you know, wh- what do we do now with that information? Like, what was your main takeaway? Um, the, the main takeaway is that even if you test negative, but if your risk is high, you need to presume that you may still have illness, right? So if your pretest mm. probability is upwards of 80 or 90% because of where you live, who you've been in contact with, just because you get a negative test, the, you know, the post-test probability is still elevated. It's not zero. It's not close to zero. So depending on what your prior is, this, um, a negative test in this regard will only slightly re- reduce your post-test probability down to about 60 or 70%, which is, you know, greater than a coin flip. Mm-hmm. So it's, you should not be, wow. you should not feel assured that you, you know, you don't have the illness. Right. Well, I, I, I guess, especially if you have symptoms, that's probably, you know, if you have yeah. symptoms that match, then then that probably yeah. puts yeah. your if probability you way high. Match, if you live in an area that has, you know, a high, you know, uh, penetration rate, if you live in close proximity with, other, you know, under individuals with it, yeah, that, that definitely puts your prior probability elevated. So with a negative test in that scenario, it's not reassuring. Yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, in personal anecdotes, I feel like I, I, I've talked to people who have gotten tested and, and I feel like. The people who kind of just thought they had it because they had a runny nose once, but like, you know, never had uh, symptoms. Most of them didn't have it. And then the people who like had it on the nose exactly when and how, uh, they, they, they tended to actually test positive, uh, just to, just in personal anecdote. Interesting. Yeah. Um, are you, so, uh, you don't have to answer this, but, uh, uh, Tasmania, is that, um, are you there for work or, uh, Research or, or just other purposes? Uh, I came here nine years ago. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Change of pace. Yeah, change of pace. Uh, and we haven't left. <laughs> uh, the lifestyle here is pretty good. It's pretty wow. laid back. Yeah. Well, how, so yeah, how, how, the, I don't know anything about Tasmania. Tell me, tell me one thing about it that I should know. Oh, um, my God, um, it's got the cleanest. I think air I know where it is on the map. So. <laughs> uh, oh, what's that? It's it's got the cleanest air in the world. Really? Okay, that, that's what I hear. That's interesting. That's interesting. That was never on my radar of places to visit, but now I'll uh, now now I've heard it. All right, 
unless you have anything else, uh, Gare, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for calling in today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Next, I want to read and respond to an email from Andrew. I don't want to give his last name because we didn't talk about putting this on the show, but I found it very interesting, so I'm going to read this. Uh, when I he, he wrote, and I quote, when I listened to your episode on topology, I couldn't help but be reminded of John Gustafson's Type 2 Unums, and he sent a link there, which I'll paste into the show notes on localmaxradio.com slash 137. He continues, which is a proposal for alternative computational system that operates on sets of continuous numbers rather than points on the real number line. It seems like there is tremendous power in thinking of terms of sets rather than points. Uh, And finally, he he adds, also with regard to polling, I think you should ask uh, to interview the folks behind uh, electoral-vote.com, Andrew Tannenbaum and Christopher Bates. You know that? Well, I'm going to start with that last one because the first part's more interesting. But uh, Electoral-Vote is a website that I have been going to since at least 2004. I believe that's when they started 2004. And they were very, very accurate in the election of 2004, 2008, and 2012 because what they did was kind of a weighted average of all of the polls out there based on their perception of the polls' accuracy and also how long ago it was. So you kind of get a sense of which states were going in which direction. Now, in 2016, they were not that accurate because the polls were not that accurate, and you could you could see from the you could see from the results they had at the beginning of 2016. So uh, it's kind of an interesting question whether the same thing will happen this year. And I am definitely uh, uh, passing the site uh, from time to time, so that that could be an interesting interview. Now, uh, these unums, I I have never heard of this thing called unums before, and I was really intrigued. So I looked into it. It's a replacement for floating point numbers. Now, for those of you who don't know, who are not in the, um, you know, who are not in the in the know in terms of computer science now, computer work, computers work. When you have kind of a a decimal number and you're doing computations like, you know, division and multiplication and square roots and all that on decimal numbers, they are usually represented by these floating point values, which can get very high, they can get very low. Um, and they, they usually they're in scientific notation, you know, they have, um, they have a long list of decimals, and they have, uh, you know, exponent, but you know, there's kind of a margin of error, because when you multiply two things together, you might get even more decimals, and they just chop off the end of it. So, um, there's a lot that's kind of inexact about floating point numbers, but they're meant to uh, represent exact points in space. Very interesting. Now, they're very, very efficient. Computers can compu- compute with these things very efficiently, and that's why they're highly used. Uh, because they're inexact, when you want to represent something like uh, a currency, amount owed, you don't use floating point numbers. Even though it's a decimal, you'll just you use an integer, the number of cents, because that's exact. And so... Uh, so there are certain points where you don't want to use them, but uh, many, many points where you do, particularly in machine learning, you know, when you're learning weights of a, um, a logistic regression, for example, you want to learn, you know, the parameters of your model, you are often going to want to use floating point numbers to represent them. Now, here is an alternative to floating point numbers that has some neat properties. Uh, maybe you get rid of the kind of, um, the kind of issues where you kind of have that inexactitude there and, Instead, you start thinking of sets of numbers. And so I was looking at the general idea here, and basically what these things represent is they represent, some of them represent open sets of numbers. Let's say like the open set between one and two is any number between one and two, uh, not including one and two. 
And then it also has values that include the points between those open sets. So you'll have one that includes the point one, and you'll have the, not, not point one, but the point of one, like this is exactly one. And you'll have another one that represents exactly two. And then you'll have another value that represents all the values in between. And you can kind of represent uh, uncertainty and inexactitude in that manner. And I found it very interesting. I also found it interesting that it, uh, so it is using a topological view of numbers uh, because it's open sets and boundary points. Um, I also found it interesting that it uses the projective real number line, which is, um, uh, so there are two types of extensions to the real number line. One is the projective, which means that, you know, the question is what happens at infinity? Um, the affine real number line says, okay, well, if you go to negative numbers and you go higher and higher negative numbers, as in lower and lower negative numbers, you know, high, higher magnitude, like negative 100, negative 1,000, negative a million, and so on, you go all the way off to the end, you get to negative infinity. And then on the other side, when you get to higher and higher magnitude numbers, you get to positive infinity. So that's the affine real number line. The projective real number line says, no, that ends up being the same number, just the infinity, the one over zero. And which one do you use? Well, it's kind of a question of what your application is. I mean, so I did an episode. I want to say, I know it was in the nineties. Let me look at, uh, let me look at my archive here. I think it was episode 90. Yes. 94 where I talked about numbers in terms of ratios. When it's when you're talking about ratios, you're only talking about positive numbers. So the location of zero and infinity, you don't have to worry about the difference between negative infinity and positive infinity. But when you're dealing with the full real number line and computations on that, then you do. And so I think I can do now a whole show on projective uh, spaces versus affine spaces. I think it's a really interesting uh, topic. And... Um, the fact that this uses the projective real number line means that there's a single infinity. So what they might do is they might say, hey, I have four values to represent. I represent zero, I represent infinity, and then I represent all of the negative numbers and then all of the positive numbers. And then I start dividing them up from there. And so I just think that's a really interesting way of looking at numbers. I think it's very cool to kind of take a look under the hood of what's of the types of computation that underlies all computation and see how can we improve it a little bit. Because if you improve it a little bit, then you improve computers across the board, even though it takes probably many, many decades to to upgrade everything. So I've, I thought that was fascinating. Couldn't stop talking about it. I wanted to share that with you. And finally, our final caller had some comments on the Electoral College and has also spoken about uh, proposed electoral for reform in his home province, British Columbia, Canada. Okay, you've reached the local maximum. Uh, hi, Winston. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Uh, so I know that uh, you emailed me and you listened to the shows in the Electoral College. Did you listen to both of them or just uh, just one of them? I listened to both of them. Oh, very cool. Thanks for listening. Um, so I... I know you said you kind of had maybe a different take on it. You had uh, a few videos that you did on YouTube uh, that were related to stuff going on in, in your area, and um, you wanted to maybe uh, give me your take on the Electoral College, maybe something that uh, that I missed. Um, so um, what what is that? Maybe you could talk about your video first. <laughs> okay, so the series of videos I have were related to a referendum that was going on in my province. Uh, so I live in British Columbia, Canada. Um, 
And so there was a referendum there on changing our electoral system, and I made a bunch of videos about that. Uh, the referendum went down to defeat somewhat predictably. People are always very suspicious of changes to their electoral system. Uh, what what were they trying to do? So they wanted to introduce a form of proportional representation. Uh, so right. if your listeners are probably familiar with the first-past-the-post uh, electoral system where you divide the whole country up into little uh, districts. And the person with the most votes in each district represents that district. Uh, the difference in a proportional system would be that instead of doing that, you have there's various ways of accomplishing it, but the end result being that you give the number of seats in the parliament or legislature or Congress, whatever the equivalent is in your jurisdiction, proportional to how much support each party gets. So if a party gets 40% of the vote, then they get 40% of the seats. Uh, the big effect there is that under first past the post, a small party that is gets like 20% of the vote would actually have a hard time winning any seats in first past the post because that sure, sure. is not enough. But under a proportional system, they end up with 20% of the seats. And so that has some effects on the sort of makeup of the political system because instead of being restricted to a two-party system, you end up typically having a multi-party system. And so the question was, should we switch over to that or maintain the first past the post, which we'd been using? And would that have been for all of British Columbia? Yeah, so that would have been for all of British Columbia. That would have been interesting. Well, I guess uh, in, in Canada, the, the two-party system isn't as absolute or near absolute as it is in the U.S., but it, imagine if that would have passed, then it would have been very different. Yes. So, I mean, as it is, we actually have three parties in our um, legislature. So we don't have, yeah, we are far and away less dramatically two-party than the United States is. Uh, and that's part of the motivation why there's pushes for proportional representation, because people want to support these third parties in a way that's not happening in the U.S. Right, right. I feel like allowing third parties in the U.S. has always been a big issue, but this year it's just each side is at each other's throat. We don't even have time to talk about that this year. <laughs> this year, I'd so, really like to have a third party. <laughs> well, yeah, that may be true, but everyone's so scared of the other party. It's like, so anyway, what what is your take on the Electoral College? Obviously, well, there's a lot that could be said about it. There's a lot I already said about it. So uh, there is. Um, yeah, I suppose. So what I think the actual fundamental problem with the Electoral College is that the Constitution didn't specify how each state should choose its electors. They left it up to right. each individual state. And I think what that's led to is a situation where each state is trying to maximize their own influence by the rule they've chosen. And that's why all the states, well, almost all, have chosen this winner-take-all rule because that maximizes their own influence and I think that operates to the detriment of the system as a whole. Uh, I think the winner-take-all rule is probably the worst possible rule that you could come up with for that. Uh, and I think that's where the problem is. A lot of people like to complain about the Electoral College giving support to small states because they've got this one-man-one-vote thing. Uh, I'm fine with giving more power to small states if that's what you want to do. Uh, but I think the bigger effect in the Electoral College is the winner-take-all rule. And I don't think that does anything useful. So, so not do anything useful or do you think it actually does anything harmful? Uh, I think it is probably moderately harmful. I think the effects 
tend to cancel each other out somewhat uh, because you've got states on multiple sides. So it isn't terribly harmful, but I think on net it is harmful. Yeah. So what could be done like within each state? So there's obviously, I mean, you could district up the state again or do it by congressional district like some of them do, or you could do it proportionally in each state. That might be... um, I, I, the, this uh, five minute call, I don't want to try to think ahead as, as to what all the different effects that would be. But uh, what were you thinking? So uh, obviously, the b- basically, there seems to be two versions. There's the proportional or district method. Uh, there's some variations of the district method because you've got the extra two uh, electoral votes per state. Um, do you sort of create more districts? that don't right. line up with the congressional districts or do you hand that to the overall popular vote winner or the person who wins the majority of the other districts? There's various variations on those. All sorts of ways you can do it. Lots of this. Uh, but those, all those different methods don't tend to have a huge effect on the outcome uh, because as long as you don't allocate all of the state's electoral votes to one candidate and you're doing it some way based on how much support they have in your state, it ends up not being a huge effect which one of those other methods you might choose. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, th- I'm, I'm trying to remember it like in my memory bank and I, I'm i going to have to look this up and after this conversation, I'll tell everyone if this is true or not. But I think <laughs> actually at the beginning, states were trying to send con- congressional delegations like as a slate, like, oh, yeah, Connecticut has six uh, representatives, the whole state votes and like the whole six from one party can go. And I feel like that was ruled, you know, not allowed uh, mm-hmm. very early on. So from so, what I understand, yes, they did that, but it was never ruled not allowed. Uh, states are still allowed in principle to select, have the uh, their legislature select um, whoever they want to send. There's no limitation. Oh, no, for, for, for the Electoral College, yes. Yeah. Um, but for um, uh, but, but for Congress, actually. Uh, so uh, it's- Congress, the House has always been direct elections. But up until, is it the 16th Amendment, state legislatures used to pick the senators. Right, right. No, yeah. But I, I actually think this could be, this could be totally wrong. Like, like way at the beginning, like the first, first time around, some states tried to say, okay, let's send a whole slate of one party for our representatives. And then that was mm-hmm. like, the Congress was like, no, uh, uh, that, that's not going to happen. So, so I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. Because yeah. uh, if it's true, you haven't heard it because it probably, it, it was like very yeah. quickly stopped. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, uh, thanks for the call. Um, I, uh, I enjoy these five-minute calls and uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely have this out before the election. <laughs> All right. You know, he brings up a really interesting point. And I do want to think more about the idea of winner-take-all with the big states, because if you kind of do a reducio ad absurdum here, if you kind of imagine a situation where a bunch of states are always a lock, and then that lock kind of dominates, uh, becomes a majority, which I don't think we have. I think the swing states right now are, uh, are are clearly in control. But if you do have states that become a lock and become a majority, then they can dominate the country for a long time, very unhealthy. So I do wonder if the power of states is maybe dispersed enough to for this effect to not be too great, but it is kind of a, a problem to look at. I mean, like, like imagine if something like California were so big that it were more than a majority of the country, then the Electoral College would not be too helpful, would it? Um, 
So, and you know, maybe this kind of reminds me of uh, Antebellum America or After America, where the Southern states didn't even let people vote for anyone other than the Democrats for the most part, and so you did have that block that uh, kind of dominated basically until until the Republican Party came along. So, uh, uh, so I do want to think about that a little more. How do you like that call-in show? I think that was a lot of fun. If you have comments on any of these issues or the issues that we discussed on the show, localmaxradio at gmail.com is the email. And hey, maybe we'll set up a call if people like this format and if you'd like to do a call. All right, next week, I'm going to go for some more news updates with Aaron. And I have some great guests lined up for October. I know I was a little skimpy on it on on in August and September, but uh, we've got some great guests lined up for October. I hope you're looking forward to it. All right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.